listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, it's fantastic, isn't it, to sing all of these songs that we sing at Christmas. And the biggest selling Christmas song of all time, in fact, the biggest selling single of all time in the Guinness Book of Records. It's a Christmas song, obviously, and it's the song uh, sung by Bing Crosby, White Christmas. Here you go. Here is Bing Crosby. It uh, first sort of came to the public's attention in a 1942 film called Holiday Inn, which is where the uh, uh, motel chain, hotel chain gets its name from. And uh, this is Bing Crosby singing with uh, Marjorie Reynolds, who uh, looked good for the parts. Obviously, her voice didn't, so apparently they dubbed her singing over. It was another actress singing. There was a later movie made, I think it was 1954, called White Christmas. So much was the success of the song. Almost 10 years later, uh, they could still make movies cashing in on this song. Oh, to have the royalties to White Christmas, a song that is played uh, everywhere at this time of year. But it's interesting, the story behind the writing of this song, White Christmas, this incredible resonance that this song has had through popular culture, that despite all the advancements, rock and roll, everything that's come since, that this song from the mid-century still is the biggest selling single in the history of the world. The song was actually commissioned by Paramount Pictures. They wanted this to be a showcase of various songs that Bing Crosby, one of the biggest artists in the world, could actually perform in this movie about a man whose girlfriend doesn't sort of love him, loves another guy, so he creates a holiday inn which only opens on various holidays. So he has these different songs for Thanksgiving and Independence Day and Christmas, and this is all his attempt to win his girl back. We've all been there. We've all opened hotels based on holidays to win someone over. So it's, it's very relatable. And what's interesting is that there was actually another song that Paramount was hoping was going to be the big single. But in order to have this cut through, really it was a vehicle for star power, it was a vehicle for selling music, Paramount Pictures commissioned probably one of the great American songwriters, Irving Berlin, to write the song two years earlier. Movies take a while to be produced, and they commissioned Irving Berlin in 1940 to write this Christmas song. Now, there was two problems. Number one, Irving Berlin was a Jewish and had very little connection to Christmas. The second thing is that the movie is set at this time when it's snowing and it's very, you know, all the images that we have uh, of a European Christmas that even here in Australia uh, we still have on cards and Christmas decorations, which is strange when we experienced the 42 degree day a couple days ago and we're sweating and enjoying a white Christmas is that uh, Irving Berlin uh, was given space to write this song and he was doing this at the La Quinta Hotel uh, in California. The La Quinta also became a hotel chain, but the original famous La Quinta Hotel in California where it was not snowing, in fact it was lovely Californian sunny weather. 
So Irving Berlin did what he did. Irving Berlin wrote simple, sentimental songs with no real connection to the story of Jesus. He just remembered as a Jewish boy growing up in New York, his family having moved from the Russian Empire to come to the United States. He remembered the feel of what it was to go around to snowy New York and experience this white Christmas. It's more about the atmosphere, the feel, the vibe of Christmas. The movie began shooting, and during the shooting of the movie, something huge happened in the world. That was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Actual shooting was stopped for a couple of weeks where they had to rethink whether it was suitable to put this light-hearted movie out now that the country was at war. But what was interesting is that the war changed the tone of the film. When the film came out in 1942, American troops were now committed to theater, serving in the Pacific and in Europe. The song was played on US service radio all across the world to thousands of troops who all of a sudden found their lives completely changed. And this song, which says this, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And imagine hearing this when you're on an island in the Pacific fighting against the Japanese. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. The most difficult performance Bing Crosby told his son that he ever did was to actually perform this song for the USO, which is the, the group of entertainers that go out and, and entertain the troops who are out in combat. And he appeared before 10,000 troops in this incredible big show and sang this song, and it was just weeping. So what's so interesting is Stephen Holden says a music critic about this song, the song also evokes a primal nostalgia, a primal nostalgia, a pure childlike longing for roots, home, and childhood that goes way beyond the greeting imagery. Another music critic, Richard Corliss, says this, it connected with GIs, just general infantrymen or US soldiers, in their first winter away from home. To them it voiced the ache of separation and the wistfulness they felt for a girl back home and for the innocence of youth. This was the most popular song and one other music critic said it proved that a secular Christmas could be possible and profitable. And this was an idea of Christmas, which is all around us and muddies the waters at this time of year, because what it does is it makes Christmas, it, does, it, it uses all of the terms, but changes the content. And Christmas then becomes this looking back to the past, to childhood, to various memories and traditions. And there's nothing wrong with that in moderation. But when we actually listen to the song that we just sang, 
Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, we see a very different understanding of what Christmas is. This song, the music, was also written by a Jewish man. A Jewish man who was deeply proud of his Jewish roots, his Jewish identity. But Felix Mendelssohn had also come to realize that it was possible to be a Jew and also believe that Jesus was the Son of God and had come to save humanity. And Felix Mendelssohn was both a Jew and a follower of Jesus. The words that were written around this song were written by two men who were part of a great move of God in the 18th century, Charles Wesley, and the words were later changed by his friend and ministry partner, George Whitfield. And the words in this song are hark. To hark is to listen. We don't use that word heaps anymore. It's not like hark, there's a you know, package at the door, <laughs> you know. Your Christmas presents got here. Yes, finally. Thought they missed, might miss the 20, 24th. But to hark is to pay attention, to listen, to take note, to come into full focus. Something different and radical is happening. The herald angels, it's not just angels, it's actually angels that are heralding something. Again, a word we don't really use, a word that's more used to the old, you know, herald son, this idea of a herald who would come into town before we had media and actually herald news, shouting at the top of their voice in a resonant voice that would carry that something profound had happened. So listen. The angels whose cross between heaven and earth are heralding that something has happened. They're crying out for glory to a newborn king. Now, throughout much of history, a heralding of a king was an incredible moment. A king what meant a change of government. A newborn king would have been heralded in places like Australia before the rise of technology and the telegraph. The only way that news would have spread was virally through human voices as they stood in squares and yelled out that a new king had been born. And this is what the carol says, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, nature rise and worship him who is born at Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels goes in a completely different direction to white Christmas. White Christmas is a sentimental looking back that primal nostalgia, as Stephen Holden called it. Hark the Herald Angels does something different. It introduces us to the radical newness and disruptive nature of what the first Christmas was. And that nature is what we should encounter every time we open the Scriptures and find that strange experience of having just come from a shopping center and the bizarreness of these songs and this strange secularized Christmas. And then we encounter in Scripture that radically different story. This is not about going backwards. This is about going forwards. 
This is not just about the birth of a baby, but this is actually a birth of a king. And a king is different than an ordinary person. You and I are ordinary people, and I have responsibility. Each of us has a different swathe of responsibility as leader of this church. I have a responsibility for this church before God. As a father, I have a responsibility for my kids. As an Australian citizen, I have a responsibility. There's different things I have a responsibility for, and some of you have different, different imagine circumferences of your responsibility, but a king has a huge circumference of responsibility. They have a rule which goes way beyond just being a citizen or a parent or having a job or being a friend. A king actually is different from an ordinary person because a king brings a kingdom. And Christmas is not just about the coming of a king, Christmas is about the coming of a kingdom. And a kingdom means a new rule. A kingdom means a new domain. A kingdom means a new land. And instantly, the arrival of a king we see brings shockwaves. The response of Herod, who wants to find this king because it's a threat. The mentioning in the story of Caesar, in the time of Caesar, the emperor of Syria, Quirinius, Herod the king, all of a sudden all these authority structures and people who the world is used to being their rulers, all of a sudden this is turned upside down. New king, new kingdom, new land. And if there's a new land, it means the land that you're possibly in now is actually the old land. And interestingly, this instantaneously no longer comes about, becomes about primal nostalgia, Instantly, we're faced with a choice. A new land creates what's called a succession problem. How are you going to pass from one king to another? Who are you going to follow? What's going to change? And so with the arrival of Jesus the king in the form of a baby, it means that Israel finds itself on the edge of a new land. Now this is something that has happened to Israel before. In the book of Numbers, we find at the beginning of Joshua, we find the people of God actually standing before them with a river, the River Jordan, and on the other side is a promised land. Some of them are actually going to cross and enter into that new promised land. Others, like Moses, are actually not going to cross and get into that new land. They find themselves at a boundary. Christmas brings a boundary before us. And what's really interesting is that when you look at the Christmas story and see these different characters that we encounter, we encounter these characters in the nativity story, in the gospels, and these are boundary dwellers. These are people who live at the point where an old land ends and a new land begins. Simeon, who we just heard about as we took communion. Anna, Simeon and Anna, who'd been praying in the temple, waiting for God to act for many years. A teenage girl, Mary, unexpectedly has an angel come to her to say that she's going to bear the Messiah. We have shepherds minding their own business. One of the most 
unglamorous jobs at that time who find their night disrupted by a heavenly choir, the heavenly choir itself, so many angels appearing. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist. We have the Magi coming back from Babylon. All of these fascinating characters that appear at this boundary who overlap between an old world and a new world, an old land and a new land. But also everywhere in the story, as you read the nativity recollections, we see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which gives rise to this child inside Mary, who falls upon Zechariah, who, who falls upon Elizabeth, who grows in John the Baptist, even from within the womb. The Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over this story, and the Holy Spirit is springing something new into place. Because a new land means new rules, new ways of thinking, new ways of operating. Ephesians speaks of the language of when Christ comes, we are then invited into being new men and new women, not living out of the old scripts. And these boundary characters then actually become guides showing us various responses when actually Jesus turns up and disrupts the order. It says of, well let's actually open the scriptures to Luke chapter one, and we're gonna begin in verse five. And I just wanna read one particular story. And I wanna use one of the boundary characters who's hardly ever referred to uh, in Christmas stories. We sort of skip by him. And that's actually John the Baptist. And I've thought about this as you turn. We're gonna turn to uh, Luke one, verse five. I think part of this is you don't see many nativity scenes with John the Baptist. He doesn't fit our Safeway Christmas decoration you know, framework. He wasn't in Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby. Thank you, that was a resounding uh, affirmation of that joke. Or it was a terrible joke, I'll have to tell you. Verse five, in the time of Herod, King of Judea. Notice mention of King Herod there. A terrible, terrible tyrant. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. These are people who are the remnants of those who have followed God. In Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, it says in Malachi 3, verse 16. And the little title I have in my NIV is The Faithful Remnant. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written, written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. This is who these people are. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they're both very old. These people were faithful, they were devoted, but they were yet to be fruitful. Their lives were lived in the waiting for God to intervene and come and act. Verse 8. 
Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by a lot or random, you know, they would distribute lots according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. A priest was chosen, there was a bunch of priests and the temple was arranged, there was a part of the temple which was the holiest of holies. You go into this sacred place and this was where the presence of God had dwelt. Now what's interesting at this point of the story, because Israel had been into exile, there's actually the presence had left the temple and was not there as profoundly as it was in earlier periods because of the disobedience of Israel. But this is still an incredible moment. Most priests only got to go in there once in their life. Now we're used to the concept that actually this side of Jesus, this coming of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence can be before us. That when we sing in worship like we just did, when we pray, when we read scripture, when we talk with others about God, that God's presence can be there palpably and powerful. But at this time, this is the one chance this guy has got to actually go into the full presence of God. So imagine the nervousness, the anticipation but also knowing that somehow the system has broken down, that God's presence isn't there like it used to because of the disobedience of people. Verse 10, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the incense, of the altar of incense. Now this means that something has changed. The Shekinah glory of God had left, but actually he's back, an angel is back, something is happening. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. There's a river in this picture between the new land and the old land. When a new land comes, even if it's wonderful, even if it's the answer to our prayers, when God opens up a new opportunity, often our response will be fear. And when reading the nativity scenes, you'll actually see that people respond initially with fear. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. This son is coming, this boundary character is actually going to be born. Now listen to verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of people, not in the sight of his mates, not in the sight of his academic peers, not in the sight of people who he's broadcasting his achievements to, this man will be different because he will be great in the sight of God. His audience will be one, an audience of one, the one holy God. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. There's something about him. It's not saying those things are wrong. We see people in the New Testament drinking wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine, but this means that this guy is being set apart, asked for a higher level of holiness. There's something set apart about this guy. Could he drink kombucha? It's fermented. No. But most importantly... He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He only, therefore, is there for an audience of one, God, to be great before God in God's sight. Number two, he's set apart. Number three, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what these boundary characters are. This is pointing forward to the new man and new woman that's to come on the other side of Jesus. 
He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Prodigals come home when new land appears. Because maybe that actually left what they thought was the old land. And a new land disrupts those who have walked away from faith. And when the new land, the new king, the new order, the new rule appears, the new kingdom, prodigals come home. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. This is what is actually read in that passage I read from Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. What comes after the faithful remnant is actually a promise that this new Elijah will come and he will do exactly what is written there. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Moving from the old land to the new land is actually a time of faith. Faith is needed to go to the new land. And what's interesting at this time is actually Zechariah who represents the priesthood and how God's had been doing, God had been doing stuff in the last season that no longer works in the new season. He has an encounter with God and he goes silent. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. People going into seclusion is a big theme in the nativity Stories, we'll come back to that. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I want to point out something. In ancient literature, Greco-Roman literature at this time, just a woman speaking is so unbelievably unheard of at this time that this is actually quite shocking that we can skip over this. That we have... This woman saying, the Lord has done this. This is actually radical because all of a sudden the order has changed and now women are speaking because the Holy Spirit is doing something. Let's jump ahead to the birth of John the Baptist. In verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, pardon me, I wasn't emotional. That was just some weird thing with my throat. No, he just call, he's called to, he's to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father. I mean, this is just a comment. You imagine this being played out. This is like comedy at this point. They're trying to make signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. There's this breakdown in communication. The old ways isn't working anymore. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately that he stepped into the faith of doing the new thing, stopped acting in the old land, in the old season, and what God had done then, and accepted that it was a new season, grabs a writing board and writes on it, steps into the new thing, the new promise. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak. Praising God, all the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who asked 
So everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what is then this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now this is key to understand. The Old Testament ends with the concept that prophecy had stopped. Abraham Herschel, who was a Jewish writer who wrote a famous, famous book called The Prophets, where he looks at all the prophets, so much rich truth in that book. But the sad, sad thing about that book is he writes that book believing that there are no new prophets because God's not speaking anymore. But actually what Zechariah does here, singing and prophesying in the Holy Spirit, is prophecies back on. Holy Spirit's back on. In the new land, it's actually changing, and what people are hoping for, for God to speak and speak through humans, it's back on. And so he starts to actually praise. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. See the link, holy prophets long ago, but now prophecies back on. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And to speaking now, prophesying over John, he's prophesying over this boundary character and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. A prophet's been born. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of this tender mercy of our God from which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. These boundary people, John in particular, have this calling over them for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him. These boundary characters, we then can use the term, what they are, living on the edge of an old land into a new, with Jesus about to come, is that they are a forerunner. These people are forerunners. If you look at pictures and arts from the Renaissance, and you see how they would paint John, John the Baptist, John is either continually pointing to actually a Jesus who you can see as in this image, or pointing upwards to God. Forerunners actually prepare the way through their being devoted to God, wholly set apart, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're humble and they point to God. They are forerunners of what God will do. Mike Bickle and Brian Kim describe it in this way. Forerunners proclaim the coming of the Lord and the events directly related to it. They prepare people spiritually to respond rightly to the Lord in the midst of the unique dynamics that will occur at that time. Forerunners live both in the now and the future seeking to live in the fullness of God's purposes in the now while preparing for the fullness of God's purposes in the future. These are people who look around them and see that much around them looks like the old land, but they only are living for the audience of one. They're preparing for God to come. When George Whitfield and John Wesley 
wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. They didn't just want to write a good song that's going to be belted out as people eat mince pies and wear Santa hats. They wrote that song because they believed that, that moment where Jesus comes again, whilst Jesus came 2,000 years ago, our hearts drift from him. People forget to remember the way of God. There are people who don't know the way of God. There are people who've walked away from the way of God. And George, uh, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, who wrote this hymn, and his brother John Wesley, they understood that at the birth of the modern age, God was asking them, to be forerunners again. Hark the Herald Angels is a disruptive song which says that the birth of the modern age as the world was globalizing, the British Empire was creating trade across the world, technology was changing things, that that call to be a forerunner was actually there and present and they literally walked out in the highways and byways of an industrializing Britain and actually heralded a new way of what God was going to do. And we face a similar moment at the beginning of the 21st century in a rapidly globalizing world. We're called to be forerunners again, to be Elizabeths, to be Simeons, to be Annas, to be John the Baptists at this moment. And so in this Christmas sermon, we actually find a resonance and a touch point with what God has been doing at Red this whole year a reconnection with actually the vision that God has had before us through 2019 at a corporate level, but also at an individual level. A calling back, a calling forward, a calling deeper. And I actually wanna just prophetically actually name that I think that what God is doing at the moment has got the same call before us to actually be forerunners at this time. That some of us have actually been living under the old land, the last season, nursing the hurts and mental patterns of the past. But before us, Jesus is always there. His spirit wants to come again and actually renew us. We're being called this Christmas not just to look back and do all the right Christmas stuff, but actually look forward, not just for 25th of December, which is ultimately a mark in the calendar. The truth of that moment is that Jesus came and turned the world upside down, created a new land, a new kingdom, and we have to respond to the question, do we wanna be a forerunner and live in accordance with what's to come or live by the old outdated script that is now passe and passing? So, how do you be a forerunner? I just wanna just give a couple of ways that we can step into being a forerunner. Firstly, when we look at the nativity stories and we encounter people like Mary, a girl who was probably 14, not expecting to be the center of this cosmic drama, when we see the shepherds minding their own business, who were in interrupted, with a kingdom that's not imposed like force, like in so many other kingdoms throughout history, and even today, but actually encounter a kingdom which is heralded before them, which is delivered with grace. And those who don't have humility in them, who have everything to lose, are not in that humble position to receive this new kingdom. Being a forerunner, requires humility. 
And the story of Christmas is a story of incredible humility. The giveaway, the tell, is actually that the new king of the world, the king of the universe, comes as a very vulnerable baby in a manger who then becomes a refugee because the king of the age is trying to kill all of the children to stop this new king. And so we see these forerunners, Mary, the shepherds. We see the magi who come from Babylon, the place of exile, and we don't know if they're pagans, Babylonians, or worshiping the Babylonian gods, or we don't know if they were Jewish people who'd lived in Babylon, but those who were exiled come back, and that requires humility. The second thing about a forerunner is that forerunners herald the new land. Anna, who for years and years has been praying in the temple, waiting for the restoration of Israel, waiting for God to renew his people, sees Jesus as a baby and realizes that everything she's been praying for since she became a widower, young in life, has actually come true. It says in Luke 2, verse 38, that coming up to that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That Anna, this woman, at the end of her life, still can become a forerunner. She'd been living as a forerunner. But then when Jesus comes, she becomes a herald. And so forerunners herald the new land. To be a herald of the new land in this day and age when there's doom and gloom and even in the church a theology of pessimism where we look back and there's plenty of things that we can be down about and upset about and offended about and see our own sense of justice around or actually believe the old scripts, believe the script in the culture that we're just in decline, that we're actually this, this marginal minority who the wheel of history has passed, actually being a herald speaks the gospel of Jesus and it wages narrative warfare against the stories that are actually told against us. Some of us need to do that as we share the gospel, but many of us also need to do that to ourselves because the stories that you are telling yourself are the stories of the old land and Jesus has come and they are null and void. Some of the stories that you're telling about your identity and how you're basing who you are, how you're trying to achieve, they're actually wiped clean with the coming of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has mopped up that chalkboard and wants to write a new story. You need to wage narrative warfare against the stories that have captured your mind. We need to replace and even herald to ourselves the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again, waging narrative warfare on our own minds. We notice too that being a forerunner requires preparation. It's really interesting how the people who, if we look at, have this process that they go through. Joseph has to be prepared for the fact that his wife's going to give birth to a child that's actually not his, but it's through the Holy Spirit. Mary, this teenage girl, goes through a period of preparation where she has to get her head around the fact that this angel has heralded, her, uh, heralded something is different. Anna and Simeon have been in preparation, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the scriptures tell us of John that the, as the child grew and became strong in spirit, 
and lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. What God will do sometimes, we can hear this story and think instantly we're going to be transformed and transported to this new land where everything's going to be flourishing straight away. And what God will do sometimes, because he's interested in our preparation, is he'll actually allow us to seemingly live in the old land, but live out the new story while we're in the old land. Why? To prepare us. Prepare us in the wilderness until the moment where we publicly appear. God will use the hiddenness of the old land to prepare. John lived in the wilderness. Jesus lives in the wilderness. Elizabeth spent five months as this mum in seclusion. Our world continually tells us that we have to be seen, but sometimes God will hide us in the old land, preparing us ready. And in that period of preparation, just as Elizabeth had something growing inside of her, just as Mary had something growing inside of her, God wants to birth the promises of the new land inside of you, reanimate what you thought was lost, to actually turn you into a prophet and a herald. Lastly, the fascinating dynamic of this whole story is that being a forerunner requires relinquishment in order to receive. Israel came to the Jordan River. Jesus goes into the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry and he goes and does the baptism of repentance that actually to cross into this new land doesn't mean that we must take a whole bunch of money with us, a certain kind of passport. The entry documents into the new land are simply handing over the keys of your life to God, to actually relinquishing any pretense that we're actually in the rule of our own life. We see Herod blocking it. The new land can be resisted. We can choose to stay mentally in the old land. But John Wimber said this, Remember the economy of the kingdom is simple. Every time we come to cross a new threshold, it costs us everything we have. Ha- we have. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security we've accumulated up to that point. It costs us our life. Watchman Nee said this, another letting go, a fresh trusting in Christ, and another stretch of land is conquered. We conquer in a completely different way in the kingdom, not through imposing our power, but actually handing everything over to God. And then our response, just as the shepherds who came to worship, just as the magi who came to offer homage to this new king, a baby in a manger. This Christmas, we come and say, God, take everything take our lives. You are king. We want to step into the new land. Father, this Christmas, we don't want to sing the songs of the past. We don't want to look back to a time which we look back with primal nostalgia. 
Father, we recognize that not just this Christmas, but the whole of 2019, you've actually been doing a new thing. That your kingdom is a new land in the world. Father, we wanna be forerunners, pointing to what you're going to do next. Jesus, this Christmas, come and remind us that you come as a baby. You turn the world upside down. May we give ourselves to you in a new way. And so, Father, wherever the stories of the old land, the patterns of the old land, the lies of the old land, the ways of the last season has got to hold on us, into those places, we just ask your Spirit to come now. So come, Holy Spirit. Let us focus on you now. Wipe those slates clean. Lead us into the waters of repentance and baptism that borders the new land. Bring the prodigals like those magi who've gone far away but need to come back. Tell a new story over our hearts and minds. And Holy Spirit, birth new things. Spirit, birth forerunners in this place. Whose arms point to you, not to us. Point everything to you. May we be an open channel. Free of the old. And wet it ready to be filled with the new. Birth something new now, God. That in 2020, we may live out of your new land. We pray this in your name.